Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by reporter Tom Waite. Tom is a political reporter for CBS2 and KCAL9 in Los Angeles. He joined the station in 2013. He was previously a general assignment reporter where he's covered everything from crime to natural disasters to the auto industry. I get to talk to him a few times a week about politics. Tom, thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. It's really uh, awesome to be here. So you've covered so many different things as a general assignment reporter, and I want to just cover what's it like to do your job. And I want to start with something that you and I were texting about recently, which is that there were some protests in Los Angeles, and we were talking about what it's like to be a reporter who covered protests. I'm going to guess that most of my listeners have never been in that experience before. So first, could you just start out with talking to us about which protests, whether local or statewide or even ones that garnered national attention, which protests have you covered as a reporter? Well, you know, recently, the most recent protests obviously were the protests over the death of George Floyd. And that was that's obviously top of mind just because we spent such an extended period of time covering them because they occurred over a number of months. And really, I have to say of any protests I've covered or rallies, those really were moments where I could feel like I was living history. I think that it was a moment where I saw so many different kinds of people coming together from all different backgrounds and walks of life. And it was really energizing and incredible to see. And, you know, 99% of it was so peaceful. Of course, there was, you know, there was the initial violence that we saw um, when we saw the, the, uh, protests first break out. But, you know, th- those are sort of fringe groups that really weren't defining the the movement there. But otherwise, it was just, you know, days and weeks of really organized, um, incredible rallies to watch, because a lot of it was, it, you could see that the organizers were kind of educating some of the people in the audience and talking to them about uh, the BLM movement and explaining it to them and explaining, I think a lot of people we're learning in real time um, about, you know, what was going on and, and how these folks who were organizing these rallies, you know, the real depth of how marginalized they felt over the decades and over their lives. And I think it was a real opportunity for people to learn. It definitely was an opportunity for me. And I really appreciated how gracious and kind the, the people rallying were. They to sometimes you don't know, how anyone is going to treat you as a member of the media. And I have to say, I had a really good experience approaching people. They were, you know, very uh, willing to talk and share their experiences. And I think that was, that's really the essence of uh, journalism, obviously, is, is hearing, listening to other people and getting their perspective out there and making sure their voices are heard. So how do you decide how to do that? You were saying that you felt like when you were covering the protests that a lot of people were being educated. And then you, as part of your job, allow their voices to be heard and educate your viewers. How do you pick who to talk to? I mean, we're talking about the George Floyd protests. How do you decide what aspects of the story are the most important to tell? I mean, 
my assumption is you have probably less than five minutes, maybe less than four minutes to tell this really important story to viewers. Well, sometimes it boils down to, you know, you'll, you'll be standing there watching speakers go up to a podium. One moment comes to mind where the protesters uh, shut down an intersection. I think it was Sunset um, and Laurel, perhaps it was, or, or Crescent Heights, somewhere in that area. And the organizers had done a really good job building a list of speakers that went up to the podium and told stories or their their own stories, or they told, you know, or they, or they talked about historical moments and why those historical moments kind of weaved into the one that we were witnessing at that time. So sometimes it's really easy because you see these people go up to a podium and you, you hear their story and think, oh, gosh, that'd be great. I'm going to you know run over there when they're done. And grab some people. And then sometimes it's just like looking out into the crowd and seeing who's, how the reactions are and kind of just making a good guess. I mean, it's, you obviously don't get a lot of time to, to pick people, but you know, you just kind of go through and try and find as much diversity of opinion and thought as you can to make sure you get a representation of who is in the crowd that you're following. So, um, but you know, it was crazy. It was it was so interesting just to watch because even at the most intense moments, I think I was at one of the um, nights where the curfew had been imposed. It was really interesting to watch the the protesters, the activists, because they, yeah, they had, you know, Hollywood Boulevard shut down, but at the same time they knew when it was time to go, they gave pretty heartfelt speeches and then they dispersed for the most part. I mean, there were some people that stuck around, but, but it was really incredibly, um, I thought it, really strengthen their movement, uh, the folks that marched and, and rallied because they were so organized in the sense, I don't think there was a central or- organizing force. I think there was just lots of different community organizers that did it, but they were, they, they were smart in the way they strategized it because they, they didn't want the moment to be diminished by, you know, what happened in the beginning, which is, you know, they didn't want the movement to be overshadowed by something like looting or, you know, someone, one or two bad apples doing something that would then overshadow all of the positive energy that I think that they were trying to, uh, to, to get out there to people. And just for our listeners outside of Los Angeles, you're mentioning a couple of famous intersections. No, that's okay. And streets. (laughs) I think most people know Uh, Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset and Laurel is another semi-famous intersection where there were a lot of protesters who gathered uh, this past summer in uh, 2020 in the wake of George Floyd's death. And you've talked a bit about the fact that it was well organized, that it was peaceful. Were law enforcement officers there? What did the relationship between the press and law enforcement officers seem to be while you were there observing? So I was in the studio for the initial violence that happened, you know, with that sort of fringe group, the initial night of, I think it was a Saturday, it was a Saturday when Saturday and Sunday were, were when the, we saw a lot of the fire set and some of the burning and and that type of stuff that we saw. So I wasn't out there for that, but I was out there for the weeks following Law enforcement was very, like, they were very interactive with the activists. It seemed like there was a lot of camaraderie on the street. And, and it's, I, even at the, I was at one of the protests, which was at the LA mayor's mansion. And 
it was fascinating to watch. And I, and I interviewed both the sergeant and one of the organizers of this particular rally. And they were interacting with each other. And it was, there was a lot of listening going on. You know, the, one of the activists was talking to the police officer. It was a, it was a young black man. And this officer was a white man. And it was, it was, a, I interviewed them both afterwards because it was one of those moments where I, I thought it, something really special was happening because this young black man was explaining his experience with police officers to this officer and he, and he was listening and it seemed like he cared. Um, and that was good. That's, I mean, that kind of dialogue is what we need right now. Uh, especially in this movement, um, young black folks want white people to listen to them and to hear, to hear them. And so I just thought that was a really powerful moment. Uh, and both of them spoke to me afterwards about, about that interaction and, and, you know, that it was meaningful to both of them. So I, those are the kind of moments I really, really treasured to see on, you know, in this, because I think that's where progress is made. And I think that's, I think the movement did make progress. I mean, these, these people, I mean, it, it culminated, I think it's still going on, but it culminated with the massive, rally here in Los Angeles when gay pride usually takes place. We, it was replaced. We, there was it because of COVID there was no gay pride rally organized. Instead, it was a massive, uh, BLM gay pride. It was just a big, you know, unity parade. Uh, if you want to call it that or March, I, I suppose that's a better word, March, uh, through Hollywood and, and West Hollywood and, and beyond. So, and that was incredible to see. I mean, it was, I, I don't, I don't know the crowd count, but it, it, you, your listeners may have seen video of it. It was, it was massively attended. You mentioned a couple of times that, you know, you felt like you were watching history, that you were a witness to history. And then you just told us about this interaction that I'm very happy to hear about where there's a real dialogue. It looks like there's real communication between law enforcement and one of the protesters. And I'm going to kind of take a different tack to the question I asked before about, you know, how you just, how do you decide what to cover, but a slightly different perspective, which is obviously as a human being, you have certain views on what's happening, but then you as a reporter have to provide some sort of neutrality or objectivity. How does that go into putting that story together. I mean, I I know that you don't put your stories together to promote a certain viewpoint or to promote a certain, you know, bias. So how do you find that journalistic objectivity? And is it okay to admit we're watching history right now? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we acknowledge that a lot in terms of it almost seems like for everybody, right. Living through this past year of COVID and, and all the things we've witnessed. Uh, we definitely acknowledge it when we're doing coverage of any one number of, of the major events we've seen over the course of the last year. Um, I just think for me, I can only speak for myself in terms of how I cover any story as I try to, I try to see from the person's perspective who, you know, who is part of that story, you know, how they're seeing it and then try to be as sensitive to that perspective and listen as much as I can and, and make sure that their story is being told. I mean, that's the only way I, I think that I can describe this movement and covering it is just making sure 
that their story is told and it's, you know, it's, it's not about me per se or any other journalist. It's about us being a conduit for their experience and their stories and getting that out to the general public so they can hear and they can feel, you know, if they're not out there marching or if they don't understand the movement or, or if they don't agree with the movement or they do agree with the movement, you know, disagree. If you just want to make sure people are provided with the information, the experiences, and then they can, you know, they can, then they can make a decision about how they view it based on the stories that are being told out on the street. This kind of brings us to another topic that you and I have talked about offline and you, you talked about educating the viewers and what's important to provide them in terms of story. How do you get people to trust you? I know that sounds like such an unbelievably broad question, but what if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, no, actually here's what happened, which is maybe another way of saying, how do you combat disinformation? How do you prove to people, no, I'm really providing you with the facts here. This seems to be such a pressing problem when we talk about the media and how events are provided and portrayed to us as listeners and viewers. Well, unfortunately, I don't think there are some people that are so far gone that unless you like have one-on-one interactions over a very long period of time and you get to know someone personally who has views that, that are so deeply entrenched, there's really not much sad. It's very sad, but I just think there's a very you know, large chunk of our population, unfortunately, at this point, that just no matter, I could point at the sky and say it's blue and they wouldn't believe me. So I just try to go out there and I'm just very careful with what I say and what I report because the minute you're wrong, it's like people don't just say, oh, Tom Waite reported something wrong. They'll they'll, they'll say the media X, Y, Z. So anytime someone sees or hears one thing, they then just say the media. And then it's like they, we all get lumped into one big blob, which is, which is why I I think that term is so silly. But, um, but yeah, I, there's, there's, I don't, I, I think about it a lot. I, and I do, I do worry about it because it's concerning to see so much disinformation out there, especially on social media. I mean, anybody who just, I, I, in fact, it's interesting. There's this one woman, um, her son was killed during that Las Vegas massacre. And it was that country music concert in Las Vegas. Well, I reached, we had spoken with her family after he had died and they were very gracious and kind and um, I reached out to her after Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from uh, Georgia, who you know has spread many conspiracy theories, among which she called the Las Vegas shooting a false flag, uh, which means basically it was the motive for it was essentially to stage, you know, to stage the sort of like to. Uh, as an excuse to create more uh, gun re- gun legislation uh, restrictions, right? Uh, anyway, so I reached out to this woman because I, w- I was wondering what her reaction was to hearing uh, Congresswoman Green say these things about the Las Vegas shooting. And she turns out she's, I don't know that she's a full-blown QAnon believer, but she believes in all of the things that you kind of were describing, like disinformation, anti-vax, all of all of these uh, fringe kind of views that we see out there right now. 
And so I've been interacting with her a lot because she'll send me articles and she'll send me things from these very far right or I don't even know where these websites come from. And she and I have a, I, I, an interesting relationship because she likes to email me these articles and I'll, I'll you know, point out, no, this isn't true. And that I feel like is my only way of getting through to people is if it's on a very like one-on-one personal basis because I'm shocked someone like her She's, you know, she lost her son in a massacre and she still believes all of this nonsense, conspiracy theories that are being pumped out there. And if someone like her believes those things, someone who, you know, has deeply experienced loss uh, to, the mo- to a degree most of us could never understand in such a horrible way. I mean, that is what scares me is that someone like her, she's a lovely person. She's a very nice woman. We have, you know, very good interactions. I think that's an important thing too, is trying to keep the temperature down. She and I don't, you know, yell at each other or anything. I, we have a good, you know, um, relationship. And, and in that sense, we, we keep, we keep our conversations light, but I think it's in, as a whole, there's not a whole lot, you know, we can do just to hope that people come back and stop believing some of the silly things that they see out there. That's an amazing story. And you and I have talked about this a little bit, but it takes, I mean, what you've described, one, you're not out there, you know, speaking to a mass audience. It's one-on-one and it yeah. takes a lot of time. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's, that's a heavy lift. And, um, and maybe that is, it's inter- I'm thinking of an analogy. We talked to Ensei Ufat, who's now head of the new Georgia project about how to get people involved in voting, which is not the same as how to combat disinformation. And she said, you know, some of that work really has to be done one-on-one. There are no shortcuts. Um, No, it's true. And that maybe brings us to the next topic that I want to talk a little bit about, which is politics. You are now CBS LA's uh, political reporter. That's how I get to talk to you regularly. And I'm wondering how you decide, particularly, you know, Los Angeles is a major media market. How do you decide which political story you're going to focus on that day? It seems like most days you have about four or five different options. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the same thought process you go through with your podcast, right? <laughs> um, yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's really, you just try to guess what you think is most important for people to know about because you can only, I mean, we obviously can cover different different topics in a newscast, but we can I'm, I can only do, you know, one or two things a day. So you, it's really just a guessing game as to what you think people want to know more about and that you think that would be most helpful to people because that's ultimately at the end of the day, what we do, right. We're trying to give people information that we think is most useful to them or interesting to them in some cases. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, you just, you kind of just go through a checklist, I guess, in your head and you collaborate with other people. Obviously I don't make the decision on my own. We have producers that help us make those choices. So it is, it's kind of a collaborative process. Um, Yesterday, for example, we were we had a few different choices. There was uh, President Biden introduced his infrastructure bill. There was also, of course, the Derek Chauvin trial to give a little more in depth on that. Uh, to go a little deeper on that, we had that option, and then, and then um, 
We had, there was a new poll about the recall here in California regarding our governor, Gavin Newsom. So we were thinking, do we go a little deeper on that poll to kind of give people a sense of where that stands? So we, we went through that. That was kind of our top line list there. And we, we picked the, the Chauvin case to be the one that we would go more in depth on. We still covered the others, but not, we didn't have a reporter assigned to the other ones. Yeah, you have a lot of power in terms of determining which information to disseminate. And I know that you cover public officials and politicians, and this is something you and I have never talked about, but let's say you're at a press conference or you're interviewing a politician, and part of your role as a member of the media is to serve as a watchdog for us, for members of the public. What do you do when a politician is just obfuscating? What do you do when a politician just doesn't answer or they just, they answer, but it's not a response. It's words, but uh, they're talking points. And you feel like there's really an important story to tell. And you feel like you need to try and help to hold that official accountable to us. I think the best way to do it. And and again, I mean, I'm sure not to turn it back on you again, but uh, you know, you doing this podcast, I think the best thing you can do is show the context. So you show you show the question being asked, or you 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 indicate what question was being asked, and you just show them the the politician in question not answering the question. And if you get the opportunity, if it's a press conference, you press them as much as you can. If they move on, then you show that, and then people can make their own choice about what they're seeing. Because obviously, you can't like force anyone to answer a question. All you can do is hope that that if they don't, that the people hold them accountable when it comes time for an election and that it, the consequences of not answering a question matter. So, and I think, I think the last election on some level maybe did, did force that issue a little bit, but we see a lot of politicians still out there, even now on both sides that are, you know, that are dodging some of the questions. I mean, uh, two examples we have, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo, in New York, who's facing a lot of unanswered questions that he hasn't answered. And then we have on the other side of that, you know, we have just the last couple of days, we have the Matt Gates story, the the Republican congressman from Florida, who who is facing questions after a story was published that he may be under uh, inquiry for sex trafficking. So, you know, there's two politicians right there from both sides of the aisle that are facing tough questions that. We'll see if the voters hold them accountable if they if they don't answer these questions. Yeah, that, that's a good way of doing it, which is to provide the voters with all of the information or and say, look, we asked the question here. Um, last bucket of questions. Have you ever gone undercover and or have you ever um, been less than forthcoming about the fact that you are a reporter? So I went to journalism school. I have a master's in journalism. And one of the things we went through was a course kind of about this, sort of like the legal, ethical issues in both, both, you know, obviously they're, they're separate issues. Legal is different than ethical, <laughs> but I have never gone undercover. And I think there's a pretty famous case for ABC News with Diane Sawyer. It was, a, it was like a grocery store. Yeah. They went undercover. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were hammered pretty hard on that. And that that's, you know, the, something that, Lots of journalism schools uh, debate debate that. Um, I 
I would it, it to to do something like that. I I it just would I don't I guess it would have to be a real case by case thing. It's generally not something that we would do. I mean, hidden camera. I guess they've done before. I don't, but I've never. So I've never done that. I I don't. I can't really speak to that because I've personally never been involved with that. And then if you are covering a story and it's not readily apparent that you're a member of the media, do you feel like you have to tell people around you if, you know, obviously if you don't have a camera person next to you and you don't have a microphone in your hand, which are objective indications that in fact you are a reporter, do you feel like you have to say, I'm Tom Waite, I'm a reporter before they start talking? Yes, absolutely. I think especially... Especially, I mean, definitely, 100%. But, I, and it's funny that this, this came up once when I was, a, I was a reporter in Kansas City. And I remember we, there was a huge story that was going on there. It was a woman who was arrested and she was pregnant and in custody, begging to go to the hospital. And the, the officer would not take her. She ended up losing the baby. And of course, that, that was a huge story. And we all wanted to talk to her. Well, I went to her door to talk to her, and she's very sweet, especially given what she had just been through. Uh, and I identified myself, and she would not talk to me. Now, another f- friend of mine at the competing station went to her pl- home, too, and he texted me after. I got her. I'm like, how did you get her? How did you get her to talk? Well, it turns out <laughs> he didn't tell her. That he, I, he may have told her he was a reporter, but he didn't tell her that he was rolling on the interview. He didn't tell mm. her that he was mic'd up. You could tell when the, the story aired, the cameraman had the camera on his, like on the strap holding it like a purse. So she didn't know he was rolling. So it was, I mean, that kind of thing is so shady to me. It was horrible what he did to her, I thought. Um, but. But so, yeah, I mean, whether, and I don't know that he may have identified himself. I think maybe that was how he kind of justified it, that he initially identified himself, but he never told her he he was rolling, which is still really, I think, like unethical in my opinion. Um, So, you know, yeah, I think if you're going to, if you're going to get information that you then plan to disseminate. Now, here's the thing. I mean, people with, anyone with a cell phone now can walk up to a police officer and ask a question about, oh, hey, what's going on at the scene? And then the officer may tell them, oh, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening here. And then if I walk up to that same officer, identify myself and tell them who I am, they won't tell me the information. But then the person who just walked up can go post whatever they just found out on social media. And I'm, you know, sitting there, well, hey, you just told them, you know, so it's sometimes frustrating, but I still think at the end of the day, you have to tell people who you are because you're you're getting information that you're then intending to disseminate and people have a right to know if that's happening. Well, you bring up so many important issues here, which is one ethics and the law are not always the same thing Two, There's now a little bit of a line that's blurred between who is the press and how exactly we define the press. And three, that as clearly an official member of the press, I think you are held to a higher standard and in that loops back to our previous discussion about the idea that, you know, how do you get people to trust you? So, so many things that we could continue to discuss, but I know um, nobody has infinite time. And so we've learned a lot from you. I want to learn a little bit more about you. I always end the podcast with the same three questions for our guests. 
So hopefully they'll be fun. Here we go. Question number one, which famous person dead or alive would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? (laughs) That's a good question. I think right now I'm obsessed with the Chernobyl disaster. So I'd invite Craig Mazin, who I think he wrote and produced the Chernobyl series on HBO. And I'm just completely obsessed with that right now. So that's probably who I'd invite. All right. That was semi-depressing, but we'll keep moving. Um, (laughs) Question number two, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you get to bring one meal with you. What is it? Can it be like the meal with sides or does it have to just be? Ooh, what are you, a lawyer, Tom Waite? Yes, you can have sides. (laughs) Okay. Well, this is going to come as no shock to you. Chicken tikka masala with samosas and uh, sag paneer. Okay, I'm going to listen back to this when it is safe and you can come for dinner in my backyard and I won't have to ask you for your order. Uh, Last question. You can get one superpower for one hour. What is it? Oh, gosh. One superpower for one hour. Um, Flight, I guess. Flight, yeah, that would be (laughs) it. You know, the best part of that answer is how terrifically defeated you sound about saying well it just seems there's a lot of traffic up in the air so i was concerned i might hit something or something but i was thinking like invisibility and all these but i don't want to know what other people are thinking or saying about me i don't want any of that so it was either going to be like the ability to move things or fly but that's so interesting i thought you were kind of down on flying because you thought it was too conventional or pedestrian too, to, too, to mix too a ton congested. of too congested. <laughs> It's the traffic problem that's really the issue. Right. Tom Waite, political reporter of CBS2 and KCAL9, thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. You can find Tom on Twitter at CBSLATom. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you, Tom. Thank you to our listeners. We love having these conversations with you. I really did learn a lot, and we wish everybody a great day. We'll see you next time.